story that we're looking at this week is, is a pretty, it's a pretty crazy story, but it's a story um, about something not being good enough anymore. And I don't know about you guys, but there's been a few times in my life where I thought I knew that something was good enough, and then something happened and I realized that what I thought was great really wasn't that great. Um, so last autumn, I bought myself a TV for the first time in like 14 years. So in 2004, um, I got my own apartment for the first time, and I, had, I bought myself a TV. And for those of you children in the room, uh, the TV was like a box, and then behind the box was like five feet of plastic with all, I don't know what was inside of it, but you know, it's a mystery. But uh, it had this little fuzzy screen, and I had a, I had a Netflix subscription, which means that they would mail the DVDs to my house, and then I would have to mail them back. There wasn't any of this streaming, you know? It was like the dark ages. But, uh, but I had this little TV in 2004, and it broke, um, and I decided I don't need a TV anymore. I don't want a TV. I'm going to be one of those intellectuals who just reads all the time. Um, well, last autumn, I got the opportunity to buy myself a TV for the first time in 14 years, and I thought, you know, it's funny, because I didn't own a TV, but I still like watch Netflix on my computer, and I thought, oh, wow, I can watch Netflix on the on the big screen. This is going to be so great. And I, and I went out and I bought a, a brand new TV and it had all these letters and numbers like HD and 4K and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to go with this. And I had an intern staying with me last fall and she's up with all the technology and stuff, you know, and so we started watching nature documentaries on my new 4K television. And I was like freaking out, man. It was blowing my mind. I'm looking at this polar bear and I was like, I can see the dust on the polar bear's fur. Like, I can see the polar bear's eyelashes. It was blowing my mind. There was one scene with these sea turtles, and I was like, those sea turtles have big rocks in their eyes. And she said, those are grains of sand, grandma, you know? Like, I was just so far, I was just so far behind when it came to technology. But we were going through, and we found this great-looking nature documentary, and we pushed play, and I was like, why does it look like that? It looks terrible. And she said, oh, well, this one is in standard definition. They don't have HD. And I was like, then we're not watching it. We're watching everything HD on my fancy new television. But I didn't want to watch standard definition, even though, like, the day before I got the TV, I probably would have watched it and been like, man, this camera work is incredible. Look at that scene they captured. It would have totally been cool. But now that I had seen the other side, suddenly that wasn't good enough anymore. I didn't want to watch standard definition once I had seen HD 4K polar bear fur. Something had changed, and all of a sudden, good enough was disrupted. The story we're going to look at today is a story of good enough being disruptive. Um, this is a text that can be pretty hard to understand uh, because over the last 11 chapters, over the last uh, 10 or 11 weeks, we've been talking about Jesus the healer, Jesus the deliverer, this kind and compassionate savior who went to the margins, who went to people who didn't belong and brought them in. This Jesus full of love. This is what we tell our friends who don't believe in religion. We're like, oh, we serve Jesus and he's so full of love. And all of a sudden, we look in chapter 11, and things start to get flipped around a little bit. So at the beginning of chapter 11, we see Jesus' triumphal entry. And we're going to be talking about that on Palm Sunday. Um, but we're going to skip over that part for now and jump in, in verse 12 of chapter 11. So it says, 
the next day, the day after the triumphal entry, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. This story can be a little bit scary to those of us who are hedging our bets on Jesus being gentle and kind. Last week, we talked about Jesus welcoming the little children to him and putting his hand on their heads and blessing them. And this week, the same Jesus is cursing a fig tree and turning over tables in the temple. So this can be one of those texts that we want to stay away from, and we kind of hope our non-Christian friends don't find out about this, because it makes us seem a bit inconsistent. And the other way people use this text is uh, some Christians like to reference this um, to justify their righteous anger. Some Christians like to look at this text and be like, it's okay for us to get a little bit violent from time to time because even Jesus overturned the tables. I can't tell you how many times people have said, even Jesus got angry and overturned the tables. And I want to be like, yeah, once in 33 years, Jesus got angry. But this story is not meant to uh, condone or to protect our own worship of violence. But here's what I want you to take from this story today. Jesus has more for you than good enough. And I believe today, Jesus wants to disrupt your good enough, just like he did in this story. Jesus wants to disrupt your good enough because Jesus wants your life to bear fruit. So in the first part of this story, we see that we see that as they're walking along, Jesus was hungry. It says he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf, and he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So for some context to this, it was Passover time. It would have been early spring, which means figs were not yet in season. The, the tree was not supposed to have ripe figs on it. It says right there in the scripture, it was not the season for figs. But we can assume that there would have been unripe figs on the tree. The, the figs are growing. They're getting ready for the harvest. Uh, but we can assume, because Jesus said this, that there were not even unripe figs on the tree, which would indicate that there were not going to be any ripe figs on the tree when the time came. Um, and we can also assume that Jesus wasn't stupid. Jesus knew figs were not in season. Uh, we can assume that Jesus performed this miracle to make a point. He did this in front of his disciples, and they heard him say it. So what we need to know about this is that at the, at the moment of the triumphal entry, Jesus, it says that Jesus walked into the temple and he looked around. So the day before this happened, Jesus walked into the temple, like we just read a moment ago. He saw the temple courts. He saw people buying and selling there. He saw the money changers the day before. And as they're on their way back to the temple, Jesus comes across this fig tree and he curses it. 
so we can assume from this text that Jesus was making a point, a prophetic point, about what was about to happen in the temple. And the point that Jesus was trying to make was things that are supposed to bear fruit should bear fruit, or we can consider them dead. See, Jesus was on his way to the temple, a place that was supposed to be bearing fruit and carrying the kingdom into the world, but death had come upon it, just like it had come upon this fig tree. What good is a fruit tree that doesn't fulfill its intended purpose? It's no good to anybody. From far away, the tree looked normal. They saw the fig tree from far away. They're like, ah, fresh figs. And they went and they encountered the fig tree, and the closer they got to it, the more evident it became that there was no fruit on the tree. When we're followers of Jesus, when we call ourselves Christians, our lives are supposed to bear fruit. And to be honest, even if you're not a Christian, your life bears some kind of fruit. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. The decisions that we make, the person that we are internally, eventually that comes out. It says in the Bible that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that means when my language is critical and sharp, that's the fruit of a heart that's not in the right place. But when my words are gentle and filled with love and the affirmation of Christ, that's the fruit of a heart that is sown into Christ. And the closer someone gets to me, the more evident the fruit in my life becomes. See, from far away, it's easy to fool people. And if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you know what I'm saying. It's easy to fool people from far away. It's easy to float into church for an hour and raise up your hands and worship. And you're like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But the closer someone gets to you, the more fruit or the more evident the fruit in your life becomes. Jesus was saying to the fig tree, you're no good to anyone because your life is not bearing any fruit. So what does it take for our lives to bear fruit? If we're in that place and you're sitting there going, oh man, like I'm in that place. I, I've been faking my way through it. I'm not showing any fruit in my life. How do we bear fruit? It's easy. If you want to bear fruit, you have to be open to being pruned. Uh, when, when, I, when we moved houses, when I was about 10 years old, we moved to a new house. And in the back of the house were these incredible rose bushes. And they all had these little tags on them with like what type of rose was there. The former owner must have been passionate about gardening. And my mother was a great gardener. She, she loved to garden flowers. And I came into the, I was so excited for these rose bushes to grow. And I came into the backyard one day and she was cutting all of the branches off of the rose bushes. And I was like, mom, you're ruining this man's hard work. He puts so much work and love into these rose bushes and you're cutting them into pieces. What's wrong with you? Like they were massive and spread out and then all of a sudden there was like a sad little twig, you know? And I, I was like, mom, you've ruined these rose bushes. What's wrong with you? And she, you know, I'm not a gardener, but she informed me that with rose bushes, if you don't prune them back, they're going to die. If you want a really beautiful rose bush, you have to be willing to cut a bunch of it off in order to breathe life into that rose bush. And that's the same thing God wants to do in our lives. He wants to prune away what's dead. He wants to prune away the things that we need to move on from so that he can breathe new life into us. In John chapter 15, we read the words of Christ. And Jesus says, The Father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. See, the thing is that death cannot coexist with life. You can't have a fig tree. You can't have a plant where half of it is dead and half of it is alive because the death will soon supersede the life. 
Death cannot coexist with life, but God wants to do a total resurrection in your life. God wants to do a total resurrection in your life. He wants to prune and cut away everything in you that is dead so that you can be alive and growing in him and bearing fruit. Now listen, Jesus is not going to give up on you like he gave up on the fig tree, okay? Jesus is not going to look at you and go, I'm done with you, you're not bearing fruit, be cursed and die. It's not what Jesus, because you're not a fig tree, you're a person. Uh, So Jesus is not going to do that for you. But Jesus wants to prune the things in you that are dead. He wants to cast away the things in, in you that are dead. And he wants to bring you new life. He wants you to bear fruit. When we remain in Christ, our lives fulfill the purpose he has for us, which is bearing fruit. But Jesus doesn't just want you to bear fruit. Jesus wants to disrupt your good enough because he wants you to have access to the Father. This next part of the story, we see Jesus entering the temple courts and he begins driving out those who are buying and selling. It says he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. So we're going to have a super quick history lesson here this morning. Uh, we, we encounter this story during the season of Passover, which means that many, many people would have, been, would have been taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to give their sacrifices and to observe uh, Passover. And we can, um, we can assume that about between 300,000 and 400,000 people were in Jerusalem to observe uh, the Passover. And I want to talk just for a minute about the structure of the temple. Um, we have a diagram here of what the temple would have looked like during the time of Jesus. Now, the temple could accommodate about 75,000 people. So this was not a small structure. This was a massive structure. But we have to understand a little bit about this structure in order to understand why Jesus did what he did. Um, So if you look at the little square on the left there that says most holy, kind of inside that T-shape, most holy, only one person was allowed to go in there, and that was the high priest. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to be ceremonially cleansed, and he would go in and offer a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Uh, The next one after that is the holy place. The high priest is allowed everywhere, okay? And then it kind of scales down from there. So the holy place, there were some priests allowed in the holy place to perform certain priestly duties. Um, And then outside of that, in that light green square is the court of the priests. So if you're just a normal priest and not like a high-level priest, you're allowed to go into that place, but not any further. Um, Outside of the court of the priests, we have that little orange square, and that's the court of Israel. And any Jewish man was allowed to go in there, priest or not. And of course, outside of the inner courts, we have the court of the women, because that's just how things were. Uh, So ladies, if you and I were there, we would have to stay in the outer room um, and be okay with it. So the court of the women is there. And then outside the court of the women, we see this little ring around the sacred enclosure that acted as kind of a buffer between the sacred parts of the temple and the outside world. And then on the outside ring there, we see the court of the Gentiles. Uh, Now, the court of the Gentiles was situated on the lowest level, and this was the only part to which foreigners were admitted. So if you believed in God, um, and you tried your best to practice the law, but you were not Jewish, that was as far as you were allowed to go. 
And we can assume that there were some God-fearing Gentiles who came there to worship and to pray. But there were actually signs at those stairs, you see. There were signs saying, if you are not Jewish and you come beyond this point, you will be put to death. And the religious leaders of the temple had the political right to execute the death penalty onto anybody who went past that point. So the court of the Gentiles was the only place that non-Jewish, God-fearing people could come to worship and to pray. And that court of the Gentiles is where this marketplace had been set up. So in that court of the Gentiles is where you had the tables. You had money changers because these pilgrims were coming from different places with different currencies. So they would exchange the money, exchange the currency so that these people could purchase animals to sacrifice. And right next to the money changers were people selling the animals to sacrifice. It was a very financially lucrative business that they were running. But this was all set up in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the courts were not meant to be a marketplace. In the design of the temple, the way that God designed the temple, he didn't say, I want the court of the Gentiles to be a marketplace. The courts of the Gentiles were there because ultimately in God's plan, the gospel was going to be for everybody, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And this is why Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But the Gentiles couldn't get close enough Because there were people standing in between them and the God that they were trying to experience. There were people exchanging money. There were people selling sacrifices. There were people going about their own agenda. And this had been going on for a really long time. It was financially lucrative. And the use of it, the religious leaders and the politicians had decided that the use of it was good enough for their marketplace. There were two things that motivated Jesus' anger here. The first thing was that um, they were not showing God the honor that he was due. The temple was to be a sacred place, a place of honor, and they were dishonoring it in this way. But the second reason that he became angry is because these people were restricting the access of the Gentiles to the presence of God. See, at this point, they were only allowed up to that point, but there were people that were like, I'm going to get as close as I can get to God. I might not be able to go all the way in, but I'm going to get as close as I can get. And there were these tables, there were these barriers standing between people and the God that they were trying to worship. Jesus observed that the traditions of people had set up a restriction between people who wanted to experience God and the place where they could do it. See, Jesus' whole purpose on this earth was to give us access to God. That was the whole reason that Jesus came to either. We were, we were meant to have access with God. In the beginning of all things, in the Garden of Eden, it says Adam and Eve were in perfect unity with God. They were walking in the garden together. They had a perfect relationship with God. If you imagine like the best day you ever had with your best friend or the best day you ever had with your spouse or the best day you ever had with your kid where the whole day was just a perfect day, that's how Adam and Eve were with God. Every day they were together and they were enjoying each other's presence. And then Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the human condition and it broke that union that we had with God. It broke that relationship that we have with God because God is holy and he cannot abide sin. God cannot be in proximity with sin because he is all holy. And so from the point of time where humanity fell into sin and the time that Jesus arrived on the earth and was crucified and resurrected, our relationship with God was broken and we lost access to God. God was in that little box. 
called the most holy place. And Jesus came in and he said, I'm going to open up the access for you. When Jesus drove the money changers from the temple courts, he wasn't showing us that he condones violence. Jesus was showing us that he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you can have access to the living God. Jesus came in and he said, I'm going to move heaven and earth so that you can have a personal relationship with God the Father. The violence with which he drove out the money changers was nothing compared to the violence that he was getting ready to personally experience in his crucifixion and his death. But they both served the same purpose, which was gaining outsiders access to the presence of God. See, we can get to a place where we're good enough with God. Ah, My relationship with God is good enough. I'll settle for it. I can't quite get to where I'm supposed to get. I can't quite get to the inner courts. I can't quite get to where I can sense his presence, but I guess it's good enough. I'll just settle for it here. Those barriers between you and the presence of God, they might be things that other people have done to you. It might be ways that the church has hurt you. It might be sin in your life, but all of us have barriers that stand between us and the presence of the living God in our lives. I don't know what it is for you, Whatever that thing is between you and God, Jesus wants to fight for you. Jesus wants to remove those things and get those things out of the way so that we can push into the inner courts, we can experience the presence of God, and we can experience all that God has for us. In 1 John chapter 10, John says, If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John is saying is that when we sin, we have someone who is there fighting for us before God the Father. See, the difference between the temple courts and my own heart is that I have to invite Jesus to come in and do what he did in those temple courts. When I was a kid growing up in church, The language that we used for becoming a follower of Jesus was asking Jesus into our hearts. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? And that's like fallen out of fashion. Now we say, would you like a fresh start or do you want to become a follower of Jesus? But when I was growing up, at the end of service, it was like, if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, raise your hand. Um, And and we don't say that a lot anymore, but what that metaphor meant was it's kind of like I'm unlocking the gate. I'm unlocking the gate to my heart, and I'm inviting Jesus to come in and overturn those tables and prune those dead things so that I can have a relationship with God the Father. That's what we mean when we say I'm inviting, I'm inviting Jesus into my life. I'm inviting Jesus to come in and do something new in my life. And in doing so, I gain access to God the Father, and I gain eternal life. See, when Jesus brings correction into my life, that's him fighting for me. When Jesus brings correction into my life, it's normally because there's a sin issue or there's a rebellion issue in my heart that's standing in the court between where I'm at and where God wants me to be. And sometimes when God brings correction into my life, I view it as punishment. I view it as judgment. I view it maybe the way those money changers did, where they're like, man, he's just totally thrown us out. He's given up on us. But actually, Jesus' correction in our lives is him fighting for us. It's him advocating for us. It's him saying, hey, there's a barrier here between you and God. And maybe it's your fault that it's there. Maybe it's someone else's fault that that barrier is there. But Jesus is not going to give up fighting for you until he makes a way for you to access the presence of God. That's what he gave his life for. 
I can reject the correction of Jesus if I want to. I have the ability to reject the correction of Jesus. I can believe that I know better than he does. But we know that Jesus works through willing vessels. We've said it almost every week of this series as we've looked at stories of so many different people who encountered Jesus. Jesus always responds to desperation. Jesus responds to desperation. Jesus loves broken people because broken people have nothing left. I have friends that do ministry in prisons and they like preaching in the prison better than they like preaching in the church. Because when you come to church, you put your nice clothes on, you know? You try to like maybe erase the browsing history on your phone and maybe delete some text messages and you get yourself all prettied up and you come to church and people say, how are you? And you say, I'm great. How are you? We're all just great and happy together. But you go into a prison and these are people whose deepest, darkest secrets have been exposed. They have no mask left to put on. They're broken. They're at a place in their life where they say, what I was trying didn't work for me. That path that I headed down for years and years, it didn't work for me. I give up. I have no other options. So Jesus, you're going to have to come in and do something because if you don't, I have nothing left. Jesus works through broken people. I have the ability to stop the work that Christ wants to do in me. Christ loves us enough to give us free will. We're not robots who are subject to his whims for our lives. He wants us to invite him. He wants us to partner together with him. I have the ability, I have the capacity to sign myself up for a good enough life. I have friends, I have friends that are in this situation. We served the Lord together as children, and they decided to reject the correction of Jesus. They decided to live a good enough life. And guess what? Most of their lives are falling apart. Because when you settle for good enough over and over and over, and you reject the correction of Jesus, you limit his ability to do something with your life. If I want access to the plans that God has for my life, I have to open myself up to correction. You want a good enough life? You want a good enough victory over addiction? You want a good enough relationship? You want a good enough level of debt? Jesus didn't come so that you could have a good enough life. Jesus came to move heaven and earth so that you could walk in victory and you could walk in freedom and you could have full access to the presence of God. Good enough is not good enough for Jesus. And once you've tasted his presence, once you've seen what Jesus is capable enough, it's not good enough for you anymore. It's that standard definition television where five minutes ago it looked great and all of a sudden you look back and you say, how did I ever settle for that kind of life? That's not good enough for me anymore. When Jesus disrupts your good enough, it means it's because he has something more for you. When Jesus disrupts your good enough, it means there's a greater level of victory that he's ready for you to walk in. And you might say to yourself, you know what? It's always been this way. There's always been people selling stuff in the temple courts. It's good enough. It's good enough for us. There's always been stuff between me and God, but I guess we're just going to stay in that place now. There's always been failure in my family. There's always been brokenness in my past. There's always been bitterness in my heart. When Jesus Christ walks into the marketplace and starts flipping over tables, the authority of Christ comes in and changes the game. The people were amazed at the authority of Jesus. When Jesus came in, he said, this is not good enough anymore. I have a plan that's going to blow your mind. It's going to blow your plans out of the water. You're not going to believe what I can do with, my life, with your life. 
Jesus walked into the courts with an undeniable authority, and people couldn't deny his authority because they saw the change. The change was evident. In just a minute, we're going to look at how they walked past the fig tree again, and the fig tree was all withered up and dead. The people who were run out of the marketplace became amazed at the teaching of Jesus. They couldn't deny his authority because the change was evident. And let me tell you something. When the change in your life becomes evident, it's going to stop your friends from denying the authority of Jesus. When God changes your life, when God changes your marriage, when he changes your financial situation, all of a sudden the authority becomes evident because the change is evident. It becomes evident to the people around you. The religious leaders couldn't deny his authority. In verse 18, it says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Look, the authority of Christ demanded a response, and it demands a response of you today. The people who encountered Jesus had to make a choice. They either had to change the way things were being done, or they had to reject him. Last week, we mentioned uh, the guy who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. What do I have to do? And Jesus said, you have to sell everything. And the guy was like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. He was faced with this moment where he was either going to have to change his reality or reject Christ. And that's the same boat that we're often in. Jesus was exposing death around him, and it wasn't good enough anymore. These religious leaders were confronted with this moment where they were either going to have to change the way that they organized the temple, they were going to have to change the traditions of man, or they were going to have to reject Jesus and get him out of the picture. And these, these religious leaders, the chief priests, the chief priests are the, guy with, are the guys with political power. And so all these other Pharisees and religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus, but there wasn't much they could do. But once the chief priests got involved, these guys with political power, they were able to start coming up with a plan that will lead to the execution of Jesus shortly after this. The two options I have when I'm encountered with the authority of Christ are that I can reject him, I can act like it never happened, I can act like he never did for me what he did, I can act like I never heard the truth or that I don't believe the truth and I can keep living this half-life or I can entrust him to change me. I can allow him to change me. I can allow him to come into my heart and prune away the things that are dead and overturn the tables full of barriers that I've set up between me and God and allow him to change my story. Jesus wants to disrupt your good enough. Because just like Jesus, you were made to walk in authority. You were created to walk in authority and in victory. The day after this, it says, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Last service, someone came to me after, and he said, why did he kill the tree? Why didn't he just make figs grow on it? And I said, I have no idea. So there's that. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is what happens when you give up good enough. You can't have it both ways. You can't have the authority of Christ without surrendering your life to the changes that he wants to make in your life. 
Death cannot coexist with life. You can't choose to be half dead and also walk in the authority that Christ has for you. You have to go with the process. You have to get to a place where Christ helps you to bear fruit by pruning things. He gives you access to God the Father, and then he releases authority into your life. Here's why. Because Jesus understood the source of his power was God the Father. In this text, in verse 22, Jesus doesn't say, have faith in me. Jesus says, have faith in God. Every time Jesus got attention for what he was doing, every time he got attention for a miracle or for a word of wisdom, he always reflected honor back to the Father. And he couldn't have done that if he didn't have access to the Father. He couldn't have done that if his life wasn't in a place where he was living in surrender and saying, God, I want you to prune off anything that is dead and prune off anything that's alive if it's going to help to get me to the purposes that you have for my life. That's what faith is. Faith is knowing that I have no power in and of myself. I offer nothing. I offer nothing to this world. I offer nothing to God. But when I surrender and submit my life to God, all of a sudden I'm full of the same power that Jesus Christ was full of. And my life is dripping with purpose. And I have the opportunity to release the kingdom to people around me, to bring hope and healing into my neighborhood, into my workplace, into my school. This is what Jesus begins to do in our lives when we open ourselves up, when we open up those courts and we say, anything that's standing between me and God the Father, I give you permission to come in and overturn the tables. Overturn the tables. Jesus wants me to be fully alive and bearing fruit, but he wants to go beyond that and release me to the purposes that he has for my life. I believe so strongly. I believe to the core of my being that God has a purpose for your life. This is why I call myself Pentecostal. People say, what does Pentecostal mean? Sometimes I'm like, I have no idea. But the biggest thing that it means is that the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to indwell every believer, not just the pastors and the priests, but every believer is empowered to do the work of the ministry. That's why we have people downstairs teaching the kids because God speaks through them to those children and the children's lives are changed. That's why we have people at the connection table up in the sound room on the instruments here because every believer is empowered to the work of the ministry. Every believer. God wants to release authority into your life. I believe this as strongly as I believe anything else about the Bible. God has a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life. He wants to use you to release the kingdom in Paris. God wants to use your life. He wants you to walk in authority. If you want God to use your life, you've got to walk in the same authority that Jesus Christ walked in. You know what Jesus said in the word? He said, you're going to do even greater things than I did. You're going to do even greater things than I did. And we're so protective of the barriers between us and the presence of God. We're so protective of those dead branches. We hold on to them with our tight fists. We're so protective of the sin in our lives that Jesus can't release authority into us because we don't have access to the Father. Because we won't surrender and submit our lives to let Jesus bring us into those inner courts where our lives can be changed. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. God doesn't want good enough to be good enough for you anymore. You don't have to settle for some kind of a half-life. See, Jesus is in the business of exchanging death for life. 
In five weeks, we're going to observe Good Friday. Uh, we're going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, and I'm going to be unbearable for the next five weeks because I love Easter so much. I love Easter way more than I love Christmas because a lot of people have been born, but there was only one man who came and died and was raised back to life by the power of God. And we get to celebrate it together. We get to celebrate the resurrection together. I'm going to be unsufferable until that happens. So just prepare yourself. But what Jesus did in this moment is he willingly gave himself over to death so that life could be released in us. He willingly gave himself over to death so that he could be resurrected. And after he became the first fruits of resurrection, now I have access to that resurrection power. God is so good to us. Jesus is so good to us because all Jesus asks of us is what was already dead anyway. Jesus says, give me your dead stuff. Give me your broken stuff. Give me the ugliest thing about you. Show it to me and give it to me. And in exchange, I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to give you hope for your future. It's a really bad trade on his end because all we're giving him is the ugly, dead, broken stuff that we make the mistake of holding on to. And Jesus goes, if you let that go, if you'll release it to me, I'm going to bring you into a new place of authority that you didn't even know existed. Jesus infuses us with authority. He infuses us with authority so that not only can I walk in freedom, but I get to release that freedom to people around me. One of my favorite things about being a Christian, it's not even about being a pastor, because I liked this before I became a pastor. One of the best things about being a Christian is when you get to speak words of life over somebody who has been experiencing death. When someone feels hopeless and lost, and you get to tell them that there's hope for them with a voice of authority, that's the most fun thing about being a Christian. I want you to have that. I want you to have that. And in order to have that, you have to open up your heart and your life for Jesus to change the things in your life that you've been holding back from him. Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close? Maybe you're here today and you're like that fig tree. Like you look good on the outside. You look like you have everything together, but you are dead inside. And you haven't had any fruit come out of you in a long time. I've got good news for you. Jesus knows exactly what to prune from your life to infuse life back into you and to let you bear fruit. Maybe you're here today and there are barriers between you and the presence of God. And you're standing there and you know exactly what it is because it's something that God has been dealing with you on. Maybe there's tables full of hurt or sin or confusion that stand between you and your access to God the Father. I've got good news for you. Jesus is still in the business of overthrowing tables so that you can access the presence of the living God. And maybe you're here and you've been living kind of a half-life as a Christian. You're like, you're following Jesus and you're doing your best not to sin but you're not walking in any authority at all. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, you're not walking in authority because there's still barriers between you and what God wants to do in your life. Or maybe you're not walking in authority because there's dead things that God is trying to prune that you won't let him prune. I've got good news for you. We serve a savior who can speak healing and life with one word. And that authority is yours too. I want to pray for you this morning. And before I do that, I just, I just want to ask if there's anybody in this room 
and you hear this story and you're like, man, I've been, I've been locking the gate of my heart against Jesus and I know he's real. I know this Christianity thing is real, but I've been hesitant. I haven't been ready to surrender myself. And today's the day where I unlock, I unlock that gate and I allow him and invite him to come in and start overthrowing tables in my life. If you're here and you want today to be the day that you get a fresh start with Jesus, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? I'm not going to call you forward or call you out or anything like that. I just want to know who you are so I can pray for you. Great. And maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I've been, I've been living this sad little half-life as a Christian. I, you know, I, I'm not walking in the authority that God has for me. I'm not walking in the victory that I know he has for me. And I know that there has to be more. And maybe you've been holding yourself back from that authority by resisting what Jesus is trying to change in your life. But if you're here today and you want to ask Jesus to infuse you with that authority, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Yeah, lots of people, lots of people. To close today, I just want to do something. If, if you're comfortable doing this, if you're not, it's fine. Um, but if you're comfortable, I just want you to turn your hands palm up, just having your open hands in front of you. And if you're not comfortable doing this, God can still do something in your life without your hands being outstretched. But just open your hands before the Lord. And I want this morning for our open hands to symbolize our open hearts before God. And maybe you imagine that dead thing or that thing that you've been holding back from God. Maybe you can imagine putting those things in your hand and offering those dead, ugly, broken things to the Father today. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect love for us. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son so that nothing can stand in between us and you. Thank you, Father, for your presence God, we felt your presence this morning. We feel your presence right now. Jesus won that for us. We thank you, Father, for sacrificing your only son so that we could have life. And today, Father, as we open our hands before you, I pray that you would open our hearts before you, that you would search our hearts for anything that is hindering us from having a relationship with you, anything that is stopping us from walking in the authority that you mean for us to have. And I pray today, Father, that as we open our hands before you, would you take those dead things, would you take those broken things and prune them out of our lives, and would you release into our hands hope and healing? Would you release into us the authority that we're meant to walk in? We thank you, Father, for the work that you're doing in our lives. We pray that today would be a day of difference, God, that today would be a day where everything changes and we walk out of this room as people who are passionate about your presence and as people who are passionate about the authority that you have promised to each one of us. Father, continue to change us. Continue to overturn the tables in our hearts. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.